Well, welcome to this uh, month's August 2018's edition here of Ask Your Herb Doctor. Uh, we're calling live, or we're receiving people live here from 7 till 8 p.m. The show runs uh, every third Friday of the month. From 7.30 till the end of the show, 8 o'clock, uh, we invite callers to phone in with questions about the topic uh, that's opened up for that month, or if they have other questions related to uh, Dr. Pete's expertise, uh, they're also uh, invited to call in. Uh, wherever possible, I'd like to stay on topic because I do get people from various form forums uh, commenting on how sometimes some people's questions seem to take the thing completely off topic and uh, uh, I know people really enjoy listening to Dr. Pete's wisdom and they possibly don't like too much blathering on from uh, other questions that take up a lot of time. But anyway, uh, it's an it's an open society and the uh, program is run uh, purely with the altruistic intention of benefiting people with impartial advice and uh, knowledge on how to find the truth uh, in this situation. In medicine, it's not always easy. The number here, if you live in the area, is 923-3911. And the area code is 707, so if you'd like to call in with questions uh, from 7.30 onwards, uh, we'd love to hear from you. So 707-923-3911. Uh, my name's Andrew Murray, uh, and I'd studied a, a degree in herbal medicine back in England. I graduated in 98 and have been living here in California since 2000 and run a business called Western Botanical Medicine, uh, where my training in naturopathic medicine uh, brought me to uh, a love and appreciation of natural healing. Uh, natural and organic, of course, two go hand in hand. Um, and that brings me to the subject, uh, the opening subject of tonight's uh, discourse on critical thinking in academia uh, with relation to trials. Uh, but what I wanted to first open up with, and uh, I will re introduce Dr. Pete here uh, in about five minutes once I've just finished through the opening statements of this show, related to the latest court ruling on glyphosate's implication and its cancer-causing effects that have been finally made public. So everyone knows Monsanto probably, the big bad corporation, mega corporation, uh, owning the seeds and patenting, patenting the seeds, owning plant material for the first time ever back in the 90s when they genetically modified various species of very lucrative world-consumed products like corn and soy, etc., uh, etc., et um, to provide to and protect the starving third world because it would provide these genetically modified plants that would do better in drought conditions and which they could heavily spray with their own branded herbicide called Roundup, of which the main ingredient was glyphosate. So I want to just uh, open up by quoting an interdisciplinary toxicological paper published in 2013 uh, about celiac disease, uh, mentioning that celiac and the more common gluten intolerance being a growing problem worldwide, but especially in North America and Europe, where an estimated 5% of the population now suffers from it. Symptoms include nausea, diarrhea, skin rashes, macrocytic anemia, and depression. And it's a multifactorial disease associated with numerous nutritional deficiencies as well as reproductive issues and increased risk to thyroid disease, kidney failure, and cancer. And uh, they propose that glyphosate, the active ingredient in the herbicide Roundup, is the most important causal factor in this epidemic. Fish exposed to glyphosate develop digestive problems that are reminiscent of celiac disease. 
and celiac disease associated with the imbalances in gut bacteria that can be fully explained by the known effects of glyphosate on gut bacteria. Characteristics of celiac disease point to impairment in many cytochrome P450 enzymes which are involved with detoxifying environmental toxins and as well as activating vitamin D3, catabolizing vitamin A and maintaining bioacid production and sulfate supplies to the gut. A glyphosate is known to inhibit cytochrome P450 enzymes and deficiencies in iron, cobalt, molybdenum, copper and other rare metals associated with celiac disease can be attributed to glyphosate's strong ability to chelate these elements. Deficiencies in tryptophan, tyrosine, methionine and selenomethionine associated with celiac disease match glyphosate's known depletion of these amino acids and celiac disease patients have an increased risk to to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, which has also been implicated in glyphosate exposure. Of reproductive issues associated with celiac disease such as infertility, miscarriages and birth defects can also be explained by glyphosate. And glyphosate residues in wheat and other crops are likely increasing recently due to the growing practice of crop desiccation just prior to the harvest. We argue that the practice of ripening sugarcane with glyphosate uh, may explain the recent surge in kidney failure among agricultural workers in Central America, as written by the authors of this paper in, as I said, the Interdisciplinary Toxicological Report published in December 2013. And a second source stated, analyzing samples from a 2017 prospective study, University of California San Diego School of Medicine, they found that human exposure to glyphosate, a chemical widely found in weed killers, has increased approximately 500% since the introduction of genetically modified crops like Monsanto's Roundup Ready corn and other terminator, quote-unquote terminator species like soy, canola, alfalfa, cotton and sorghum. The term terminator refers not to the movie by Schwarzenegger but to the fact that these Roundup Ready varieties are sterile and so farmers are locked into purchasing the latest seed source from Monsanto holding companies instead of breeding their own. And the FDA only recently started testing for glyphosate. This is interesting. Uh, A chemical that has been used for over 40 years in food production, which in and of itself is cause for suspicion. And it has only been on the California Prop 65 list since 2015. But it has drawn attention to itself over several decades from plaintiffs whose occupation involved the regular administration of the chemical. And separately, FDA chemist Narong Chamkasm found over-the-tolerance levels of glyphosate in corn detected at 6.5 parts per million, and an FDA email states the legal limit is 5 parts per million. An illegal level would normally be reported to the EPA, but an FDA supervisor wrote to an EPA official that the corn was not considered an official sample. Um, Chamkasm found glyphosate in numerous samples of honey, Chamkasm also found glyphosate in oatmeal products. The FDA temporarily suspended testing after those findings and Chamkasm's lab was reassigned to other programs. So how does science become corrupt and how can we protect ourselves from corrupt science? So we're very pleased to have Dr. Pete with us here on the show. Dr. Pete, you there? Yes, yes, I 
Okay, well, thanks so much for joining again. And uh, for those people who perhaps have not heard of you or heard of your background uh, to speak on these subjects, uh, would you mind giving people an update on your uh, your previous history, your academic and research uh, background? Um, my uh, biology study was, uh, academically at least, was at the University of Oregon, 1968 to 72. Uh, uh, biology and biochemistry, especially reproductive physiology. Uh, since then, I, I've been uh, just continuing to, to study uh, primarily uh, uh, with, with interest in uh, nerve biology, reproductive physiology, and especially aging and how it relates to energy production. Okay, so um, I know in the past we've mentioned this, uh, some of your confrontations as it were uh, within academia uh, and you've worked closely within the university institutions and you've got first hand knowledge of the chain of corruption uh, would you describe your experience in detail uh, this chain of corruption's command base and its strategy and how this begins at the academic level and travels all the way through uh, to final product and the ideology behind it uh, long before I, I went to the university I, I had been interested in uh, uh, many biological uh, uh, fields, especially radiation poisoning from, from the uh, uh, various sources, especially uh, atomic bomb testing in the atmosphere. And as I got interested in the late 40s and all through the 50s in reading uh, about what was available before the atomic bomb uh, took over the field, and then after the, uh, the government and its uh, Atomic Energy Commission uh, began controlling the publication, uh, I saw that uh, anyone basically uh, after uh, sometime in the 1950s, anyone who was working in uh, biology or uh, radiation physics who told the truth uh, had a, a big campaign organized against uh, the person. Uh, uh, the um, one of the first researchers uh, who uh, uh, studied the harmful effects of radiation and uh, got it into the the media found that X-raying pregnant women uh, caused the um, uh, fetus to uh, uh, be uh, genetically injured in a way that uh, increased the, the rate of cancer in children. And uh, it took about 10 years for, for that to uh, be somewhat recognized and uh, decreased the radiation exposure of pregnant women. But the, the government was uh, essentially censoring everything that was published and uh, ruining the careers of all of the researchers who spoke out against the, the dangers of radiation. Uh, my uh, main uh, uh, concern with, with uh, uh, an apparently uh, very bright and competent uh, biologist and physicist who, who was speaking the government line uh, was uh, John Goffman. Uh, I considered him the, uh, the ultimate in, in corrupt uh, um, mouthpiecing for the government uh, all through the 50s and uh, in the 60s 
suddenly uh, he described the event. He said he was uh, talking to a group, uh, speaking the government line, uh, saying that uh, we we can't intervene to stop the, the bomb tests and exposing the public because we don't know yet whether these uh, radiation exposures will cause uh, serious or lethal mutations that, that might even uh, kill the whole population from, from cancer at some point. He said as he was speaking, he realized that he was saying insane things, but he had been saying them for 15, 20 years at that point. But suddenly, when that dawned on him that he was saying criminally insane things, uh, he suddenly uh, switched sides and, and began honest investigation of the effects of radiation on the organism. Uh, immediately, his research money was cut off. He, he was fired and uh, went into to, uh, private uh, uh, publicizing of, of the problems. For the rest of his life, he, he did very good work uh, exposing the uh, the, the crookedness all the way back to the way that the um, radiation exposure to the uh, atomic bomb survivors in Japan, uh, the figures on that were uh, completely falsified uh, right down to recent years. Uh, the, the fake data has been um, put into the journals prominently. And uh, one of the ways that they operate is, for for example, the uh, radiation health journals that uh, supposedly are scientists watching out for the, uh, the public safety uh, in exposing them to medical x-rays mm -hmm. or, or nuclear uh, power plant leakage exposure and so on. Uh, these journals, uh, uh, all, all of them that I have known of were basically owned by the nuclear industry. Right. <laughs> the the um, public health organizations that that are concerned with protecting the public these are agencies of the industry. Government, nuclear industry uh, work together to um, control the publication uh, of safety information. Uh, when I was in graduate school. Uh, our uh, lab working on reproductive physiology, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, director decided we should have a course in radiation safety in case someone was going to work on isotope uh, studies. Okay. And uh, so we went, the whole lab went over to Oregon State University uh, where they had uh, a full-time radiation safety expert and he and his uh, graduate students uh, did presentations uh, on what we should know about radiation dangers and safety. And I have never seen a university uh, uh, operate at such a low level as that radiation lab did at the state university. Uh, it, it's considered the it's a land-grant university, and uh, the, the biology department is heavily uh, influenced by agriculture 
chemistry, uh, herbicides, yeah. insecticides, and so on. But uh, apparently the, the nuclear industry got to them too. So he, maybe he wasn't being uh, wasn't being so safe with it, making it out to be a fairly harmless substance. Perhaps that you shouldn't all worry about too much. Or basically, yeah, yeah. The, uh, taking the the line that there's a threshold yeah. below which it's totally safe yeah. or even beneficial. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't actually eat some in front of you just to show you how harmless it was. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. One of their main uh, lines of argument is is that it's uh, in those small doses. Uh, it's supposed to be good for you. Mm. Uh, the Atomic Energy Commission called their project uh, Project Sunshine. <laughs> that sounds nice, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, you're listening to Ask Your Ob Doctor, Kami D. Garbaville, 91.1 FM, and from 7.30 to the end of the show, uh, people are invited to call in the questions related or hopefully related to uh, this month's subject of uh, the truth within research and critical thinking. Um, a lot of what I'm going to be asking here is based actually on Dr. Pete's recent newsletter about critical thinking where he opens up a uh, discussion on many different topics that we've brought up in the past and he's written about fairly prolifically from uh, estrogen scandals, uh, the SSRI scandals, uh, various scandals around other uh, well-known drugs that, you know, whether it's Viagra, uh, through to the ADD medications, which are essentially amphetamines for children. Uh, and how these things actually come to market is quite untenable, but obviously it's very successful. It's untenable when you think about it like a critical thinking person, uh, but quite successful uh, in terms of the cover-ups that are made and the people that are paid off. And Dr. Pete, so I wanted to question you specifically about several points of this, of which I, I understand you do have personal experience. Um, I think the, the perhaps not the uh, uh, donor interest side of it, because you've not been a donor or received donor funding perhaps, but um, freedom, you mentioned that freedom to do research is restricted by many and the same forces that shape publication. I think people need to hear this in terms of the mechanisms by which supposedly quote-unquote respected peer-reviewed journal publications or prestigious publications uh, the new england journal of medicine or um, yeah so, you know some of the other publications that people will be uh, fairly familiar with um, how these publications come into being and the funding that is uh, so lucrative and so seducing uh, for both the editors and uh, other people in charge of the publications how how if this freedom uh, to do the research actually shapes the publication itself because of the ownership of the publication? Um, it, it's the same thing. The same companies that uh, control funding, um, even though it might be uh, coming from the government and taxpayers, uh, the uh, uh, the culture is set by the industry and the government. Uh, operating in uh, the NIH, for example, uh, uh, are conforming to, to the beliefs that, that are favorable to the industry. Uh, Gilbert Ling happened to have uh, one person in the, uh, the funding uh, oversight uh, branch of, of the NIH. Uh, his whole career depended on one person uh, thinking that that uh, objective research 
uh, should continue in the area he was working on. But when that person uh, retired, uh, his uh, funding was cut off. Same thing happened to uh, uh, the uh, the virus uh, researcher. Uh, uh, I can't think of his name right now. Um, uh, uh, he he was very famous as uh, uh, working in the retrovirus field. Okay. Uh, when he suggested that the uh, HIV AIDS so-called virus right. uh, might not be harmful at all. His research money was totally cut off, and he was ostracized. Uh, even in something as as uh, safe-seeming as astronomy, uh, a famous astronomer named Halton Arp was uh, uh, doing uh, various uh, studies of, of galaxies, and he happened to photograph uh, some galaxies that uh, were obviously uh, con- continuous. There was a, a band of matter between uh, separate galaxies that uh, was uh, there were no breaks in, in the line. But <coughs> one galaxy uh, showed a very different redshift uh, from the other galaxy, and you can't have. Uh, uh, a single object connected by by a, a band of of matter, uh, one end of it going uh, uh, at uh, a vast speed uh, away from the other one. Uh, he found uh, several of those connected galaxies with very different redshifts, which essentially proved that the idea that uh, the redshift indicates acceleration away from the viewer uh, that that concept must be wrong because single objects had different redshifts uh, so they cut off his access to the telescopes so that he couldn't ever use them again uh, he had to leave the country if he, he wanted to use a telescope again uh, you also mentioned things like uh, uh, the, these wars quote unquote on uh, various lucrative diseases like uh, you mentioned the war we, we've heard about the war on terror and how that's been a complete failure and the war on cancer uh, another complete failure so these are basically brought to the front as a battle cry for funding uh, being a war but they never uh, objectively result in too much success uh, um, I can think of a number of uh, conditions or diseases for which there's been a long time of uh, potential time to find a cure but which nothing really has been found and which there is still uh, seemingly endless supply of funding to promote research into its uh, discovery into the cure and the, the people who uh, want to wage those wars and convince the government to fund them uh, in uh, uh, working in particular theories of how diseases work whether it's heart disease and atherosclerosis, uh, dementia or cancer, kidney disease, uh, whatever major uh, field they're working in, it always happens that the researchers love the line of research that happens to uh, enrich the drug companies. They're always aiming at some solution that involves 
a drug that can uh, uh, sustain patients. Uh, definitely, they don't want to cure right. the patients at a, at a low price. They want to uh, develop uh, drugs to uh, uh, make just them, keep them going, keep keep the customers buying. Yeah, and then uh, also the uh, the other quote here for. Uh, what I know you've said is completely erroneous science. And again, it, uh, I'm going to want to bring out a little later on that the information's been there and was being followed six or seven decades ago, but was buried uh, when corporations began to exert their uh, financial clout. Uh, you mentioned the uh, tumor-specific chemotherapy, the kind of ta- tailored, tailor-made, personalized tumor-specific chemotherapy for particular cancers and how you said that's completely ridiculous to uh, think think of it mechanistically like that because it just does not make any scientific sense um uh, yeah the the um the the traditional approach to medicine uh way back to um uh, the greeks uh, they were looking for general principles that would go wrong and be correctable. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And uh, uh, their approaches, diet or exercise uh, or uh, uh, herbs or particular drugs, uh, these were designed to um, adjust the the person's constitution and uh, uh, make their physiology go in a healthy direction rather than a sick direction. Uh, uh, That is still scientifically valid it's it's really the only practical solution to um, all of these major uh, degenerative chronic diseases uh, figuring out what it is as a general uh, problem that uh, causes basically everyone to to go down one or uh, more of these uh, degenerative pathways uh, but that uh, Although it's, it's the uh, primary scientific problem in biology, uh, uh, that is uh, constantly being attacked as unscientific. Uh, what they want is a mechanism that uh, potentially leads to a drug, a specific drug for a specific mechanism, and preferably it will uh, be... Uh, uh, so uh, variable and unpredictable that it will uh, require a great diagnostic effort, uh, more drugs involved to diagnose the particular uh, brand of cancer or heart disease or dementia that the person has, uh, and then a particular uh, individually designed uh, treatment for that, uh, where uh, if you're actually working on the idea that the organism uh, is intrinsically whole and healthy and that certain things are diverting it from the pathway of, of good health. Uh, that, that is where, where um, biological generality uh, should be the basis of, of scientific thinking. Uh, but that, that competes, and, and so it's considered... Uh, pre-scientific or unscientific if you uh, try to look at the uh, the organism as a whole and something that, that can be supported uh, to uh, make make it uh, uh, 
either either not get the disease or spontaneously recover from the disease. Hmm. Okay, let's hold it there for a moment, Dr. Pete. Um, it is 7.30, and so from now until the end of the show at 8 o'clock, uh, people that have tuned in are invited to call in with questions, hopefully related to the uh, discourse we're having about the uh, quote-unquote meaningful uh, research that's done and the studies outcomes and how they are skewed and uh, corrupted often but how we can find uh, good information uh, that is objective and I know we have a caller on the line so let's take this first caller caller where are you from and what's your question uh, my name is John from Buffalo okay John what's your question I actually was listening to uh, a previous broadcast on endotoxins and remembering Dr. Pete talking about the incredible falsified research relating to fish oils and the seed oils um, back in the 50s or 40s. And um, and that, that particular show spoke about endotoxins in detail, and I was trying to ask a question actually about digestion for particularly as you age, get over 50. Um, even if you eat like cooked vegetables, highly cooked, I know you've mentioned that's okay, or cooked meat, and then everything else dairy, which supposedly is easy to digest, it's, uh, my understanding is that enzymes from the foods, which are typically designed to digest them, are destroyed by cooking. So if your HCL or your digestive enzymes in the body are, are missing, it seems like no matter what you do, you're going to be more exposed as you age to endotoxins. I'm just wondering what your view is on taking digestive enzymes or um, or HCL or pepsin or pancreatic enzymes, and how would you know which ones to take to try to optimize digestion, which would thereby reduce or minimize the endotoxin exposure that is so prevalent, particularly so, with age? Yeah. So, Dr. P, how would you, how would you detail uh, or di- I won't say diagnose, but how would you uh, know that somebody was having digestive disturbance, or how would they describe that to you in such a way as may make you feel? Um, they are compromised somewhat. And how, what's your view on digestive enzymes as a uh, uh, a solution? Um, uh, first, two problems w- with uh, products. Uh, the uh, pancreatic enzymes are are very much like our own enzymes, and can be very effective for someone who is uh, deficient in enzymes and. Uh, uh, Stress and aging often slow down the digestive process, and uh, uh, so they can benefit uh, from uh, using pancreatic enzymes. However, they're made from raw animal tissue. Uh, You can't uh, uh, get the enzymes out without uh, uh, sterilizing it. Uh, uh, If you sterilize it, uh, the enzymes are inactivated, so you, you take the risk of whatever infection the animal had and uh, the, the um, there are a couple plant enzymes uh, papain and bromelain uh, which I think are, are pretty safe uh, but they only digest proteins right. and the uh, the non-animal enzymes that digest fats and uh, carbohydrates happen to come from uh, a fungus and there's the risk of allergens from the fungus with with those enzymes. So I I think the best approach is to uh, keep your energy and nutrition up so that your own 
stomach and pancreas and intestine and liver produce the proper enzymes for digesting and that you um, consider the the chemistry of the plant. Uh, Some of the enzymes, uh, if if you chew a raw uh, vegetable, for example, uh, or uh, a seed or sprout, for example, uh, these enzymes that are released uh, are, in many cases, uh, they're function is as a defensive enzyme for the plant. The plant doesn't want to be chewed up and it can release toxins. For example, if you chew up raw bean sprouts or or alfalfa sprouts, uh, you you can get a a big burst of of toxins. I think someone calculated that uh, it was uh, something like three ounces of alfalfa sprouts would release a, a lethal dose of cyanide if you chewed them up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so, but I guess I was thinking, based on pre- studying previously, that you, you're talking about cooked vegetables being okay. So if I have root vegetables or different leaves and you cook the daylights out of them, you know, for 40 minutes and they're really soft, then they become a good food, right? So the issue that you're talking about, I assume, goes away completely. And plus the PUFA is taken out so that it has, nutrition, has nutritional value. Am I right? Um, uh, yeah, you can get, uh, if you process uh, vegetables properly, you can get very good nutrition out of them. But uh, the, the cows and goats, rubens, are, are designed to uh, do that for us. And so milk and cheese are, are basically detoxified uh, plant nutrition. Uh, and to do that uh, industrially, it's very possible, and, and there are people working on it. Uh, but to get all of the PUFA out is one problem. Uh, to um, uh, get the, the right ratio uh, of nutrients is another problem. Uh, the the uh, leaves, for example, have a very good uh, uh, content of calcium and magnesium and other nutrients. So, so cows uh, can thrive uh, on a, a leaf-based diet because they have enzymes to detoxify the, the PUFA. Uh, but other parts of the plant uh, have a, a bad ratio of, of phosphate to calcium and magnesium. And so you have to look at the, the ratio of, of type of fat and type of mineral. Uh, you don't want too much iron or, or too much phosphate or too much unsaturated fat. Those are uh, pro-stress, pro-aging uh, chemicals. Dr. P, uh, right. what, what do you think about the, uh, as we're talking about digestion, and this call is uh, wondering what can be done, in terms of the uh, herbal pharmacopoeia, uh, using herbs like dandelion root uh, as a collagog, as a, uh, uh, a liver stimulant uh, to support um, bile production, uh, to emulsify fats, and uh, the bitter compounds in plants like gentian and absinthe for stimulating uh, hydrochloric acid production uh, as well as pepsin and other things in the stomach. Um, Yeah, that's an extremely valuable uh, use of of herbal uh, remedies is to uh, stimulate gentian. Uh, Yeah, gentian, the greater gentian, but there's also the lesser gentian depending on how... uh, how The the greater gentian probably has the stronger... 
uh, effect. But yeah, there's lots of different herbal bitters. I mean, some are called hot bitters, some are aromatic bitters, and some are pure bitters. So things like absinthe, even, which is that uh, wormwood, which is put in uh, drinks now, is not banned anymore, it's, it's legal, but essentially was a, a bitter to support um, stomach acid production. Anyway, so you took tension, you, you would you would stimulate HCL and pepsin production in the body because you could take that plus the pepin and bromelain and yeah. maybe those are the best the best you can do and then you just have to you know keep your energy up. Yeah, well, and, and the aroma of food is extremely important. Right. If, yeah, if, there you go. if you don't enjoy your food or <laughs> if you're anxious while you're eating it, uh, you will mess up your digestive secretions and keeping a stress down too. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, let's take the next caller, though. I appreciate your caller, uh, your call, John. And let's move on to the next caller. Caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? Hello, I'm calling from Garberville. Oh, okay. What's your name? Mike. I've got a couple of pieces of information that I've been collecting. Okay. Uh, about 15 years ago in, oh, down south of San Francisco, and in a very exclusive electronics show, I saw something called... 3D computer-enhanced ultrasound that showed bones perfectly uh, without radiation. And then the other one I had for you people is the ancient Sumerians. I believe they were the first to put in, you know, put up a writing system. They wrote about hemp root uh, extract for epilepsy, for balancing the immune system, and I'm now tracing it. It is available, uh, but this never gets out there. Uh, oh, and another one was many years ago, my health was saved by ancient Tibetan acupuncture, not the modern version with all the needles. Very few needles, very effective. Good. Thank you for your call, Mike. Uh, Dr. That's, that's my information. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Pete, have you ever heard of 3D enhanced ultrasound? I don't recall exactly, but um, there are instruments that can, for example, uh, detect cavities in teeth uh, much better than x-rays <laughs> using ultrasound, uh -huh. and, and uh, it does give you a three-dimensional picture of the tooth and its insides. Uh, and uh, a company in Washington uh, announced that they were coming out with a technology technology, but uh, something has come up and they say it won't be available for a few years anyway. Okay, let's take the next caller. Uh, caller, you're on the air. What's your name away from? Uh, hi there. Uh, you can call me Guy. I'm uh, another one from Garberville. I can barely hear you on the phone. Okay, well, Karen, what, what's your question, caller? Uh, you mentioned glyphosate earlier in your talk. Um I wanted to talk specifically about that. I've had some recent unfortunate exposure due to uh, an employment that I had um, of some pretty highly concentrated stuff. Um, and once exposed, what would you recommend to possibly prevent any prolonged effects from the exposure? Yeah, um, I'm not too sure of its uh, toxicology. Uh, apparently, when you look at the monograph for glyphosate, uh, it seems, quote-unquote, readily excreted uh, and rapidly excreted. So in terms of actually protecting somebody who's exposed, 
you know, been exposed to it, uh, I would imagine that uh, any of the routes of elimination, either through the urine or the feces, uh, you know, you'd, you'd imagine that increasing that digestive uh, output, or sorry, the, uh, uh, yeah, the, the output from the digestive tract, if you swallowed it or uh, you've absorbed it through your skin, either through the kidneys or uh, yeah, through the bowels, uh, supporting that would be important. And then obviously uh, my mind goes to things like um, uh, liver and uh, supportives, you know, for the liver, things like milk thistle and schizandra. Uh, other yeah. detoxifying. You, you had mentioned dandelion too, and, and what was well? That, that was in relation to the previous. Mentioned? That was in relation to the previous call about um, digestion and dandelion root has traditionally been used to promote bile uh, in in the liver and you know in storage in the gallbladder, so that when it's uh, needed, it's released and fats can be emulsified. So that's dandelion. okay. So that's not necessarily applicable. Not, oh. not really. No, I would imagine more uh, speeding up the process of elimination by supporting the gut and the uh, urinary output. Um, okay. And supporting. Okay. And would that apply to? Would you think like most other chemical toxins, like yeah, um, pretty much two four D, for instance? Yeah, pretty much, uh, because essentially they have to be excreted somehow in order to rid yourself of it. But unfortunately, some of these things are taken up by the bone marrow or, or sequestered uh, elsewhere in the system, in tissues or fat, especially as a, a quote unquote good source uh, of these toxins. And we mentioned in the past things like the polyunsaturates are readily taken up uh, by the fat cells and released later on to cause the damage. Um, but Dr. P, Alan, do you have any... Uh, how, how would you want to go about it, perhaps, if you knew somebody had been uh, exposed to high levels of a toxin like this? What would your approach to uh, elimination be? A lot of the insecticides and herbicides are oil-soluble, such as 2,4-D. Mm -hmm. But yeah. uh, glyphosate, luckily is water soluble but it comes in the products uh, roundup and touchdown i think they're uh the brush master and um what if you mix 2,4-d with diesel fuel uh, well the, the it's still oil soluble yeah, yeah but when it gets in your body it, it tends to stay in your brain and <laughs> and fat the the oil oh, in your yeah, body yeah. and <laughs> glyphosate luckily even though it is an, a nerve transmitter disruptor it, it luckily is, is not oil soluble uh, so it leaves the body quickly but it leaves behind damage such as uh, uh, genetic damage mitochondrial damage and nerve disruption but, so i think the uh, if, if you uh, think that you have accumulated some of the chemicals that were in roundup or touchdown other than the glyphosate then uh, things that will uh, uh, turn over your your fat metabolism uh, uh, safely uh, adding vitamin e for example protects you uh, as you detoxify the fats okay other otherwise it's a matter of uh, keeping your energy up so that you can restore uh, the uh, slightly injured mitochondria nerves kidneys whatever were affected as the glyphosate passed through. Okay, we do well, have. I can, I can definitely say there has been a definite downturn in my general energy levels since being exposed. Um, I just kind of chalk it up to, well, my body's fighting back, but um, thank you for your advice. Yeah, you're welcome. Vitamin E, thyroid, aspirin, and uh, some of the. Um, protective steroids like pregnenolone and DHEA and progesterone can 
protect against uh, many of those environmental oil-soluble toxins. Okay, good. We've got two uh, two more callers who want to pose questions to you, Dr. Pete. So, uh, and Dr. Pete, would you get a little closer to the microphone? I've been told by the engineer that your voice is very quiet and you've been turned right up okay. to, to max. Uh, so let's take this next caller. Where are you from and what's your name? Hi, uh, my name is Alex and I'm calling from New Hampshire. Okay, Alex, what's your question? I have a question about uh, taking thyroid hormone, uh, T3 versus T4. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been taking uh, about 60 micrograms of T3 uh, spaced out every hour uh, up in six microgram doses and uh, T4 uh, in the evening. I was wondering whether um, if I take too much T4, would some of that get uh, turn into reverse T3 because there's T3 present in the bloodstream? Yeah. Or is that something I really shouldn't worry about? Because I haven't been able to get my body temperatures above about 97 and a half. Okay, so Dr. Uh, Pete, a person's taking six microgram doses, presumably 10 of them if he's using 60 micrograms a day, and he wants to know whether or not there's any issue with the T4 that he would take being turned into reverse T3, and he doesn't seem to have his body temperature responding uh, the way it should do to thyroid hormone. Um, Yeah, it's possible. If you're under stress, for example, cortisol and adrenaline uh, can uh, shift the metabolism of T4 into reverse T3, uh, but uh, I, I would check your general nutrition, make sure you're having seafood about once a week because selenium is uh, the, uh, the most uh, crucial uh, nutrient for uh, making sure you're converting T4 as needed. Uh, your brain and kidneys and skin, <clears throat> every tissue has the equipment for converting T4 to T3, uh, but it needs selenium to do that. And then mushrooms are a good source of selenium. Do you have any others? That, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that was that was the answer. Thank you, caller. We have another caller on the line, so let's get this next caller in. Caller, where are you from? And what's yes, your question? Yes, hi. Uh, I'm from the local area. Uh, Dr. Pete, I was curious. I asked you about a year ago uh, to look into the monk fruit sugar, and I'll take my answer off the air. So, so what was the question? You're ask, still asking about monk fruit sugar? Okay. So, Dr. P, um, have you heard anything about monk fruit sugar? Um, uh, yes, I, I read about it. Um, uh, I don't remember exactly what it is, though. Okay. All right, well, no problem. Uh, if anybody else would like to call in between now and uh, 5 to 8, you're welcome. The number here is uh, 707-923-3911. Uh, otherwise, we'll carry on uh, with where we started in the beginning of the show. As so a Dr. Pete, I was going to say, uh, again, you've explained the things like uh, donor interests and how the wars on various lucrative diseases have failed us and how the whole personalized tumor-specific chemotherapy is such a failure. Um, I was going to ask you here that uh, the whole, how it all happens, you know, how does science come to the mainstream? We know it's all about advertising. We know it's all about generating revenue. And we know all about powerful interests that are certainly uh, not going to do themselves a disservice by producing or printing uh, damning uh, trials that show no benefit or or potential harm and and the entire Hippocratic Oath uh, which most doctors or every doctor should take and most doctors should thoroughly believe in first do no harm uh, should certainly be first and foremost in their minds but obviously 
most doctors that are practicing uh, want to help people but don't have the time to look into the science behind the things that they're prescribing and uh, as the uh, medical schools are indoctrinated by drug reps and uh, the money that comes from supporting these drugs in terms of private sponsorships or gifts quote unquote uh, to various professors in, in medical schools for example um, all of this becomes very easily corrupted and um, I wanted to mention the uh, open access movement uh, as being a alternative uh, to this donor funded publication machine uh, which I think produces so much negative um, in negative press really in, in terms of when it's uncovered uh, from drugs that were supposedly designed to help people let me just uh, ask first I think I saw the lights flashing a couple of times but I don't know if there are anybody else waiting for us uh, engineer do we have any callers does the engineer hear me okay the engineer is looking down into space as though he can't hear anything anyway dr p um the open uh, access movement do you uh, do you know much about that and do you think it's a valid institution because i did find an article by jeffrey bill writing in the american association of university professors stating that the uh, advocates of open access tell only one side of the story and ignoring uh, the exploitative practices and poor quality of many open access journals what do you have much uh, uh, feedback or, or uh, much to say about open access? Um, he, uh, Jeffrey Beale, made some good points about the uh, possible corruption of the open access by uh, simply turning it into sort of a, a personal advertising thing for uh, uh, researchers who uh, aren't, aren't doing anything uh, of special value but want to uh, go on record as having publications for their university, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so they they pay a publisher to uh, uh, publish something, even though it's junk. Uh, so you uh, open access has its uh, faults. It can be uh, just, just an expansion of the advertising industry. But uh, even advertising... Uh, it isn't required that advertisers lie about their product. Sometimes they might tell the truth. And so open access is susceptible to, to being used as personal advertising. But uh, if you read critically, you can often find very good stuff in it. The Public Library of Science so far has had a really good record of, of, uh, of getting novel information out to the public that would have been censored uh, by, by the regular old-fashioned journals that, that are owned or controlled by the industry. All right, the Public Library of Science, folks. Uh, worth taking a look at, if you've never heard of it. Uh, we do have two more callers here who want to ask questions, so let's get them in fairly quickly here. Uh, next caller, uh, you're on the air. What's your name and what's your question? Where are you from, also? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. You're on the air. Where are you from and what's your question? Caller, this is why I ask you to listen on your phone. Three, two, one. Okay, well, next let's, caller. Uh, let's drop that call and make call back. So next caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Whoops, last caller. That was probably my fault. Next caller, you're on. Yeah, hi. I had a question about uh, living up in a high-rise and okay. what are the health uh, effects of that? Well, I'm not too sure about any negative health effects other than uh, 
Uh, maybe there are actually, uh, it's been reported that the, the number of heart attacks and strokes are higher, and it's uh, suspected that it's due to the fact that you're farther away from the Earth's magnetic field. I would imagine the stress of living in a high-rise could be a cause. Well, Dr. Pete, what do you... Um, uh, there are some good studies just within the state of, of uh, New Mexico, uh, and going from, I think it was 2,000 to 5,000 in steps of 1,000 feet, they saw that heart attack, uh, heart attacks and mortality from heart disease decreased with each step up in altitude. And uh, for over 100 years, the insurance companies have known about uh, the benefits of living in a very high altitude. Uh, their their uh, statistics show that uh, the uh, cancer, for example, mortality is much lower as you go higher in, in altitude. And uh, there, there are several changes. For example, there's more ultraviolet light uh, increasing your vitamin D. Uh, your thyroid hormone tends to shift to the T3 active form. And the lower oxygen pressure, uh, once you're adapted, makes you retain carbon dioxide in your body because the... Uh, in the exchange in your lungs, uh, oxygen pushes carbon dioxide out of your body as it enters. But high altitude, the oxygen tension is lower, so you retain more CO2, which keeps your cells in a stable uh, oxidizing condition. Uh, the higher CO2 facilitates brain oxidation. So dementia uh, is uh, in surveys in recent years, uh, dementia is much lower at high altitude. Uh, Dr. Population. Pete, do you do you know uh, of any benefits of living in a high rise, uh, living on, in, in the top floor of some multi you know, multi story high rise? Uh, one advantage is that uh, the um, stuff over your head reacts with cosmic rays. Uh, okay. The researchers used half an inch of lead as a roof put it over rabbit cages, and those rabbits very quickly miscarried, were infertile, and developed degenerative diseases, and they found that it was the tertiary cosmic rays caused by uh, the um, high probability of a cosmic ray causing a nuclear reaction in the, the layer of lead. Because they, they were slowed down enough to stop within them or not pass right through them? or it, it, uh, One cosmic ray would produce a shower of intense secondary and tertiary uh, radiation, which uh, wow. increased the toxicity the lower you are. So the, the nuclear industry talks about uh, the danger of radiation flying across the country in an airplane, but actually... The higher you are, the less toxic the radiation is because the dense atmosphere at low altitude produces more secondary and tertiary mm. cosmic rays, similar to having the half inch of lead over your head. So when you're on the bottom floor of a big building, you're going to have a lot more of the tertiary uh, toxic cosmic rays wow. and less of the, uh, the high altitude uh, high energy cosmic rays that go right through you without doing any harm. 
Well, thank, thanks for that explanation. Now, there is one other caller. I don't know if this caller is really quick about his question, Dr. P, and uh, if you've got a, uh, a paragraph answer, I don't mean to cut you short, of course, because we love hearing what you've got to say, but okay. uh, it's three minutes too. So, caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Uh, from New York. I, I had a, uh, a skin rash I talked to Dr. Pete about, I think, last call, and he said sodium chloride um, bath, which I've done with kosher salt, and also the dry CO2. It's gone away, but but it actually keeps coming back. And I was just wondering if there's anything else, because it sounds like it might be digestion or endotoxin-related. And I was just wondering other things that might be useful. I, I did take acidophilus, cassai, and rhamnosis in a 100-milliliter bottle with 50 billion units in a bottle. But I was just wondering, you know, am I on the right right track? Um what, what is it incrementally that I could do if I sort of comply with your regular diet recommendations? Uh, vitamin D and thyroid are the most important things I know of for uh, uh, skin problems. Okay. And uh, would you have to take A and D together, right? Um, and not necessarily. You, you don't want to overdo the vitamin A, but uh, uh, the uh, vitamin D uh, works both on the intestine to... Uh, uh, control the endotoxin uh, and and the skin reaction. Uh, it it uh, there there's no serious interaction between vitamin D and vitamin A, but they're both okay. important for the skin. I'm afraid we're going to have to cut you short, Dr. Pete. Thanks so much for your time. And for those people who've heard Dr. Pete this evening, maybe for the first time, uh, go visit his website. It's www raypeat.com uh, he's got lots of articles written about many different uh, diseases conditions uh, etc uh, all fully referenced and he's got his unique perspective on it which comes from objectively looking at research and not just buying in to the mainstream and he's been that way for the last 50 years folks so uh, a lot of what he said is being borne out now and will continue to be borne out as the uh, web based archives of this show and all the others that we've done over the last 10 years are there so thanks for your time uh people calling in appreciate you uh, dr p as always thank you and until the third friday of next month my name is andrew murray